Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea. Next up, located in South America, with the capitals of La Paz and Sucre, a population of 11.8 million and functioning as a presidential democracy is Bolivia. In 2016, the then president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, the first indigenous president of the country, asked his fellow countrymen if he could run for an additional term as leader of the country. Despite his notable popularity, the people of Bolivia believed it was time for a change, and he lost the resulting referendum request. Despite this, Morales ran again anyway in 2019, after asking permission from a friendly Supreme Court. This election proved extremely tight, and after delayed results, the president duly announced that he had won. However, with many people suspecting foul play, including the election authorities, violence and protests erupted, and Morales was forced to flee the country. While back home now, he remains out of office, but still remarkably popular. In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the historical and political climate of Bolivia, I'm joined on the show by Dr. Martin Brienen, Associate Professor at the School of Global Studies. Dr. Brienen, welcome to the show. Uh, no, no, no biggie. Well, I'm really intrigued to dive into Bolivia. Would you mind just giving us a brief history of the country? Where sort of the, the origin story of Bolivia? It's I mean it's a it's a fascinating story uh, ultimately. I mean you we can go back thousands of years. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say that at the time that the Spaniards reach South America, uh, what most of what we now know as Bolivia is part of the Inca Empire. Of course. So before the Spanish arriving, you had the Incan Empire in existence for about a hundred years over much of South America. How do the Spanish get on in Bolivia? It takes uh, the Spanish about a year to subdue uh, the Inca, effectively to take over this empire. Bolivia is a part of that. Wow, only a year? Then what happens? So 1533, sort of conquest, and then within seven years, about seven years later, they discover silver in this, in this place that we now call Potosí. Right. Is that different to minerals Spain was extracting elsewhere in South America? This is the most productive single source of silver ever found anywhere on the planet. It starts producing these massive, massive, massive quantities of silver. Wow. How does this impact the indigenous population? The indigenous population that was already there, they pay taxes in two ways. One of them is in goods, right? Uh, So uh, corn, let's say, pigs, that kind of llamas. Uh, a bunch of which then goes into the mines to feed the people in the mining camps. Uh, but they're also required to, you know, to provide an X amount of people every year to work in those mines. Right. And this subjugation by the Spanish is only further accentuated by the diseases they're also bringing in. How does Spain actually maintain control over this region? The problem the Spanish crown has simply is this is very, very far away. It's very far removed. And so their ability to really control what's going on on the ground is really quite limited. And you see that in the, in the corruption scandals that, that rock the empire uh, throughout the years. Interesting. So it's actually quite difficult for them to maintain this level of colonization then. How does this start to manifest itself? You have a rebellion that starts in the Andes in about, about 70, 80-ish. Uh, it's uh, Tupac Amaru II named after the the last Inca king, if you will, the last Inca who gets executed publicly in, what is it, in 1572, I'd say. 
uh, right? So Tupacamaru II, uh, who starts a rebellion in the Andean highlands, joined by Thomas Katari, they both get executed in the most brutal fashion, uh, but then the mantle is taken up by somebody who takes both their names and becomes a Tupac Katari, who lays a siege to the city of La Paz for, like I said, 100 days, uh, until he's ultimately defeated by the Spanish colonial army. Right. So as we move from the 1700s to the 1800s, the Spanish are starting to lose control of the country. And this is capped off by Simon Bolivar, who ousts them. And he's actually where the country gets its name from. But it's not really just him that drives this independence, is it? What really brings about the big change is something that has nothing to do with Latin America at all. It's the fact that Napoleon occupies Spain, right? Napoleon occupies Spain, and all of a sudden in Spain you have a usurper king installed by Napoleon, and the, and the, the people left in the colonies have to decide... Are we going to accept this? Yes or no? And in general, they 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 effectively decide that no, they're not they're, they're not accepting the authority of this of this usurper who's been put in that place. That's where that's where the idea comes from. It's this idea that uh, that they don't want to take orders from Madrid under those circumstances. That means that they have to take care of their own affairs. Uh, in what's called cabildos abiertos, right? It's it's a, an arrangement that you have for when there is no legitimate authority. Like, what do you do when there's a vacuum there? That's their solution, and it's it's a a a sort of elite democratic thing where you get together and you decide what to do about the affairs of state. Interesting. So Bolivia and much of South America is kind of cut off from its Spanish imperialist masters by Napoleon's conquest in Europe. And the local elites have to kind of muddle along without any help. This must leave them pretty exposed. You do get these wars of independence. Uh, Simon Bolivar comes along and ultimately uh, liberates Bolivia in uh, December of 1824. Wow. So then you kind of just have this brand new country that had only ever really been part of different empires. How does it go forming itself, especially with such a vast population who don't even speak the same language in many cases? I mean, there's still almost 40 different languages spoken in the country to this day. How do you make a people out of this conglomeration of individuals? Uh, you know, how do you do that? That becomes that becomes the big debate. How do you do this? Right. And uh, I would argue that they've never quite figured it out. Interesting. Do you think these differences and the lack of understanding and incorporating of indigenous needs is why the country is then so unstable across the 20th century? I mean, you are correct. Uh, in the 20th century, Bolivia goes through uh, lots of coups and the occasional revolution. Uh, that, that's not fundamentally different from what they did in the previous century, though. That instability seems to be shared by so much of South America. But what seems to make Bolivia unique is this indigenous element. How does that continue to develop over the century? So you get you start getting this migration from rural areas into the cities, and it fundamentally changes the, what it, fun, it changes the character of the cities itself, and that it instills a brand new panic in the same people. Where all of a sudden, by the nineteen thirties, the 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 question becomes: How do we make the Indians more productive, and how do we get them to uh, to feel Bolivian, but at the same time, stay where they are in the countryside because we don't want them here in the cities. 
Right. So there's this mix of attempts to integrate the societies, but also resistance to it as well. And indigenous people are starting to establish themselves politically as well, mainly through unions, right? What you get, and what you get in mining is um, lots of unionizing and organized labor. You get that. And so in the 1930s, you start seeing the emergence of endless syndicates and unions, and they start in, in the mines, uh, but that, that spreads a bit. And so you get very high levels of, of political activism. And- Interesting. But this doesn't help with the stability either, as it creates just another group alongside rural and metropolitan elites that needs to be kept content. But yeah, no, no one faction really has the power to dominate the others at the same time. Right? And that's, it's, it's a problem. Yeah, that's a real problem. And it leads to, like what we've spoken about before, military coups and even a revolution in 1952. But fast forwarding a bit, and in the early 2000s, the country finally got its first indigenous president. Can you tell us a little bit more about Evo Morales and how he combines the plight of indigenous farmers and the debate over natural resources to come to power? So Evo Morales... In 2003, and between 2003, 2005, he manages to marry those two things, right? He managed to marry those two concepts of A, uh, of, of, of this war on drugs being a very unfair American imposition on the Bolivian state, right? That's unfair to poor farmers. Uh, and, you know, if, if Americans have a drug problem, go fight it in the United States there. Where, why do you have to take it to us? But they, he ties that together with the idea of this of this gas war, with this idea of of taking yet again subsoil resources from Bolivia uh, and exporting them to a rich country overseas. It's pure imperialism. He ties it all together. It makes him incredibly visible. Yeah, I can imagine. So he seems like he's going to be a real populist. But when he comes to power, he's actually relatively sensible with the economy, isn't he? Uh, And then engages in one of the most fiscally conservative, stable governments that Bolivia has ever seen. In what way? He raises the taxes on the extraction of oil and gas, raises them quite a bit, which generates a lot of revenue for the Bolivian state, uh, which... Some of it gets used for a couple of vanity projects. There's a cable car in La Paz now that really doesn't address the very real traffic problems that you get in a city that sits at the bottom of a thousand foot deep canyon. Um, But okay, it has a cable car now. But on the whole, what he does is he pays off a lot of debts and he he, he reinforces a handful of programs that already existed where they hand out small uh, small amounts of actual cash to people in need. So there's a small pension that elderly people get. There is a, uh, a payment for pregnant women uh, on the condition that they, you know, go to doctor's visits and do prenatal care. Uh, there's some payments for kids to say it's that kind of stuff. I mean, stuff that has a big impact on poverty rates. Right. That all seems like pretty good governance. No wonder his popularity spikes. He's very, very popular. I would say that he's still the most popular politician that that Bolivia has ever seen. Wow. So what happened to him? 
they had a referendum a number of years ago where Evo Morales posed this question, can I run for office again? Can I run for a fourth term? The Bolivian constitution allows to. Um, and it, first he went to court, went like, well, the fr- I mean, this one doesn't really count. <laughs> but in any case, so, um, you know, he has a referendum. He, he gets voted down, right? So the people come back and say, we love you, but but enough. Okay, go go do something else now. Uh, he goes to he goes to the uh, to uh, the Court of Human Rights. He gets he gets this he gets this court decision that it deprives him of his human rights not to be able to run for a fourth term. So he runs again. <laughs> That's a pretty interesting take on human rights. Every observer looking at that election, every observer looking at that election knows that in all likelihood, Evo Morales is going to win. Like in all likelihood, he's going to win this election. The only question is, will he get enough votes in the first round to obviate the need for a second round, right? If you, get, if you, if you have a certain percentage of votes more than the second person, right, then there, there isn't a runoff. So the real question is, is there going to be a runoff, yes or no? There's really nobody who thinks that that Eva Morales is going to lose this. None of the polling indicates that he's going to lose. Right. But OK, it looks very, very close on, uh, you know, it looks very, very close. And then for some reason, they stop. They stop updating the, the tally on television. It's never really properly explained. And then after an X amount of time, Eva Morales comes out and he says, uh, oh, I got I got enough votes. And at that point, uh, OES observers say that there's shenanigans and there's fraud. Interesting. So then what happens? A lot of protests, a lot of protests against him. And in those, I mean, and it's, it gets really out of hand. What happens, ends up happening is that these protesters, they end up looting, uh, looting the houses of a whole bunch of high-ranking politicians. Evo Morales' own house in Cochabamba gets looted. Wow. How does it end? The military does this very unexpected thing because the, um, the, uh, the head of the, uh, of, of, the, of the military high command comes out and he says, uh, we think uh, Evo Morales should step down. Evo Morales ends up having to flee the country which he does. He has to flee the country. And, uh, you know, and you have a couple of days there where nobody really quite knows what to do. Right. And it takes, it, I mean, a couple of days where there's nobody in charge until eventually, eventually it's this almost completely unknown woman in the Senate, Janine Añez, who then steps up as interim president. Interesting. So she takes over, but it's not exactly a coup. And then they organize another election, which Evo Morales' party actually wins, but he obviously couldn't run. What an incredible story. Well, we might just change lanes slightly for now and that we're fully up to date with the politics. Could you just tell us a little bit more about a festival or celebration that's unique to Bolivia? There is this one thing, you're not going to find it anywhere else. It is very Bolivian. It is very local. And that is that there is this tradition. So you have these indigenous communities, like I said, organized in Ailius. Those still exist in the highlands. And these people, they, they, I mean, they're, they're pretty closed little societies, right? They're pretty suspicious of outsiders, always have been. 
and, but they have these rivalries with each other. They have these rivalries with each other, these communities. And so you have this, this tradition. It, it, this, it, we're we're going to call it a festival. Um, it's a bit of a misnomer, but you know what it is? It, it's called the Tinku, right? That's a T-I-N-K-U, the Tinku. And if you want to do it really right, then it's T-apostrophe-I-N-K-U. And what this is, is this yearly ritual, effectively, where these people from these communities uh, get together to settle their differences within your community. Like you've got some neighbor who, who's got you hate, whatever. You settle, you settle your differences. And the way that you settle your differences is you drink a whole bunch of alcohol and then you beat the absolute crap out of each other. <laughs> no way. It's a very traditional thing. Um, I don't, I don't recommend going to go see one. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Well, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the invite. I really do. I think that's a perfect place to end the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Dr. Martin Brienen. Join us next time where we'll be exploring the Eastern European nation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is one of the most complex political setups we've assessed so far. As always, please do rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to any friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram at HowMyCountryWorks for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about Bolivia or any other country. This podcast is produced by Stephen O'Shea and sound editing is by Ashley Brown. See you next time and remember to keep asking how my country works.